welcome. The sun is shining. The the water is is warm, inviting, and we are here in the Final Fantasy 10-2 part of our season here at Norm DFM. Kenneth Shepard, how's it feeling? It's good. We're at the best one now. <laughs> We're almost at the one that Kenneth Shepard claims is the best. The one that Eric Van Allen claims is the best might be a little bit different, but... <laughs> um this is one i've been really looking forward to revisiting like as much as i love final fantasy 10 i feel like 10 to like 10 is the one that's fun to revisit because it's the classic right it's Mm -hmm. the masterpiece it's the one that is still lauded to this day and and i think from our season as we played through it we felt it it mostly held up uh it's a solid ass rpg uh deserving of the Final Fantasy brand recognition and all that. Um, 10-2 represents a lot of different stuff for Square Enix, I feel. And I feel like that's why it's the more interesting one to examine because this is Square starting to experiment with the idea of not just doing one-and-dones with Mm -hmm. their stories, which, granted, they have done other sequel games as well, both in the time since and for previous Final Fantasy games. But I think 10-2 was one of the more notable ones where they strove out and said that we are making a sequel to a numbered Final Fantasy game. Uh, Mm -hmm. And also numbering it, which is another strange thing altogether. Um, But it wasn't just the fact that they created a sequel, but that the sequel is so different. It is Mm -hmm. a really, really, really... It's kind of amazing when you look at the different games that are sequels that are clearly made of assets and and uh, and and parts of a previous game. You know, developers usually find either really clever ways of twisting those around or don't, and so they will feel either like a completely wholly new game and feel almost strange and mysterious, the way that Majora's Mask did, mm. or. They'll just kind of feel like the same dang video game with a little bit of different stuff, like insert Far Cry <laughs> mm. spinoff here. Um, so going into it, I'm certainly interested to examine this in terms of what it does to create its own feel and its own vibe and its own, you know, personality apart mm. from 10. I think that's my biggest thing going into it. What about you, Ken? Uh, I mean, as a person who's played this game fairly recently, and also it is the one that sticks out to me. like it sticks in my mind the most when you talk about final fantasy that like that is the game my brain re- immediately goes to i kind of like i see all those things very clearly that you're talking about like i've seen like you, like you, you said like it does it reads assets and i think that was like one of the sticking points of criticism back at the time because like that doesn't not in the, or at least not in the same way that it does in 10 where in 10 where it has like identical areas and uh character models and such where we're like the more modern day equivalent is like when the map is reused in something, but it is you know redone to look like a completely different setting or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Where Tintu is pretty much you know I mean it's honestly fascinating to me that it was turned around as quickly as it was. I think it came out like two years later when even if, and I think you know probably the assets being able to be re- reused was part of why it was able to uh, turn around that fast. But basically that's where the similarities between the first game and the second game kind of end because like it has. A lot, basically everything beyond that is uh, completely revamped and new from the battle system to the music to kind of like the ideologies around it as well. Like in 
both its story and the way that it uh, basically it, pillars of its design are completely different from ten, and that I think is interesting because like it, it is using a lot of things that could have feasibly made a Final Fantasy. Well, I don't remember Final Fantasy eleven was it, like you know the MMO was out by this point, but like there's enough different here in terms of the way that this game operates that it could have just been like another like a you know completely different Final Fantasy game, not necessarily beholden to anything else, and I think. A lot of those ways that it just like kind of carves out its own space in this world is kind of fascinating and speaks to a really strong understanding of like what the game had to be to feel like almost like to merit being a sequel in a world where Square Enix was not doing that a lot. And it also is it kind of stands out to me and like I think the easiest comparison to make is Thirteen Two, which was the next time that they did mm. you know the numbered sequel. And how that game felt more iterative of the original 13 systems and 10-2 feels of 10s. Yeah. Which I think is why 10-2, I think, stands out to, for more people in the long run. Is that, like, it is so different. It is so carving out its own identity. And, you know, just, just the tone of it, everything about it is different in a way that I don't think... A lot of people, you know, that, that's a, a sticking point for a lot of people. That it is so different. It is so jarring for some people. But I think, like, it had to be for this game to be as meaningful as it was and we'll talk about that in like every you know different pillar of its design as we go through the season but um yeah it's a uh, really interesting how it really you know made a name for itself I, I guess when it could have easily been some you know some cash in some easy thing that for square Enix to put out uh after the the success of 10 mm-hmm. yeah and and I think before we get into ten two proper, we definitely want to take some time here to talk about. Uh, oh God, I suddenly eternal calm, eternal calm. I almost want to call it like before the calm. That wasn't right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, eternal calm, which is a short movie that had a very strange release included, like like as as part of Final Fantasy ten. So. I'm pulling info from the the fandom wiki here to kind of lay out the timeline. This stuff has been kind of well documented over the years. Uh, there there was a strong fan reaction um, to to this because it was basically an after an epilogue movie uh, that takes place two years after Final Fantasy X, and it's included now. If you buy the HD remaster collection, it's included as in the option between 10 and 10 two, because that's where, you know, it falls, uh, in the original Japanese version of this game, there is like one very significant difference that we'll get to. And it gets changed in the English version. Um, and this, this thing can, maybe you can help contextualize this for me a bit. Cause you were kind of paying more attention to it back then. But the idea of this coming out without, some sort of direct sequel in mind baffles me because it is the most sequel bait of sequel baits I have ever seen. And that's an interesting thing that Square does like, even as recently as when these remasters came out and we'll, we'll get to the, uh, I guess equivalent thing that they put out that is a very bad and no good and does not make a great case for a a third game. (laughs) But Square Enix just like putting things out, and not really, I mean, you know, at least as far as they say public facing, um, these things are not meant to be leaving. They're just kind of like things just put out into the world for people who want like this sort of epilogue, I guess. It's, and like, like you said, like when you get to the actual what 
what the story is of the Eternal, of Eternal Calm. It doesn't make any fucking sense why they would put it out without any sort of awareness of what they were putting into the world or how people would react to it. Because like you said, it is so deliberately sequel bait in a way that, I don't know, like I, I, I find the... I mean, I, I can't speak for them, but, like, I find the notion that they were they put this out expecting people to just kind of, like, watch it and be like, okay, I have no interest in what comes next. Uh, that that feels very disingenuous to me, but we'll talk about it as we go through. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say this is more interesting to talk about holistically than it is to talk about beat by beat. So I'm going to lay out a quick TLDR of the mm. entire Eternal Column. It's also, like, a 10-minute, if that cutscene so and, and while it's on the the 10 collection you can probably also just find it on youtube or something yeah. if, if you're looking to catch up with it but if if you want the the verbal tldr uh the whole thing stars yuna is basically narrated by yuna as well uh she's kind of monologuing and talking about how it's been two years since they defeated sin uh it, it opens with her holding her breath uh, underwater kind of trying to learn how to hold her breath for long periods of time. And, uh, I guess is, you know, them trying to like establish some sort of science to the blitz ball, I (laughs) I suppose. Uh, Waka shows up, you know, praises her. Oh, you're getting pretty good. Uh, and, you know, kind of teases Waka for getting a little chubby, you know, now that he's becoming a dad, I think this is the reveal that like Lulu is pregnant. Right. Mm. Um, that, they're like, oh, you're getting chubby, Mr. Dad, and all that. Um, they head back to Besaide, and at the temple, uh, Waka introduces Yuna to a man named Tazgio, who's come to see Yuna uh, for advice about his grandson. Uh, his grandson wants to join the Youth League, which is a thing that we are just kind of told is an organization that exists. Uh, but he and his wife are with New Yevin, and his grandson used to be, you know, used to meet with New Yevon meetings. He'd go with his parents and stuff until one day. And Tazgio was like, oh, you know, it's my grandson wants to be with people his age, but I'm worried that they're moving too quickly. And this is leads Yuna to kind of think about like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of groups that have sprung up, you know, now that old Yevon is defunct. Like a lot of new groups are springing up and, and have different ideas about how to build Spira in a world without sin in a world with the eternal calm and all that. So, uh, you know, just kind of gives him advice is like, Hey, you know, go talk to your grandson, uh, figure it out and everybody can work together because even though we have different ideas about how to rebuild Spira, we all want to do the same thing and that's build a Spira that can last. Uh, as Yuna's walking out of there, walking back out of Besaid, Waka catches back up and is like, oh, the son of the chairman of New Yevon wants to talk to you. He wants to marry you. Uh, and Yuna's like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, another dude named Yibel shows up with a message from the youth league leader, Nuge. Um, and Waka t- informs Yibel uh, that Yuna's not interested in joining the youth league uh, and that Yuna reiterates that point. Uh, and so now Yibel's like, oh, you're going to start a group of your own? We'd all join that group. It's it's very... We'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. about it, but this is like a weird section of all this. And finally, Riku arrives on uh, a ship. And 
Yuna informs us by monologue that Riku has been traveling around Spira, salvaging ancient Machina, teaching people how to use them. Uh, so Rika, Riku, again, teases Waka <laughs> um, and asks about Lulu. And they also kind of like do a thing where it's like, okay, so Lulu and Waka and, you know, are all living at Besaid Village. And, you know, Waka and Lulu are, are having a kid together. Uh, Kimari is at Mount Gagazette teaching the orphaned Ronso. Uh, Riku's traveling around the world. And Riku pulls out an ancient sphere that Kimari had found in Gagazette that shows someone bearing an uncanny likeness to Titus, imprisoned and demanding to see the summoner. Uh, we can go over like the, f- I mean, we can go over the full text at some point, even though I think it even changes between eternal calm and 10 Cause there was like a line or two. I noticed when I was watching it in 10 that I felt like was not an eternal calm, but hmm. um, so Waka's like, Oh, is that really Titus? Or <laughs> again, important to note, is that really him? I don't know if it's mm-hmm. him. Could it be him? Like, they cannot say this character's name because this character was a custom name in 10. Another thing that I really think, if they do some sort of remake or something like that, some sort of fundamental update of these games, they should really just fix. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've uh, started to, like, in any, like, spinoff or anything that Titus appears in, like, they just say his fucking name. Yeah, but it's kind of like how... I don't know how they call like red and blue those names in the Pokemon games, you know, like those just became the canon names and, and all that. Uh, I I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's a weird part of this discussing this game anyways. Uh, so Yuna obviously wants to know what the heck is going on. And walk is like, are you really just going to run off, you know, and figure this stuff out. And then Yibel, who somehow ended up on this ship, and I feel like we did not get ample <laughs> exposition on how that happened, just shows up as like, the Youth League will help, and and we'll, we'll all go do an investigation and figure it all out. Um, and then and then Waka yells at him and he leaves. So that dude just shows up again for no reason and then leaves. Uh, and Waka starts going like, you know, you can't go. You can't go on an adventure. Everyone wants to see you. You don't have any free time. You're like the most popular person in Spira. And Riku's like, look, Yuna has done everything for Spira. She should be able to do whatever she wants now. Uh, and Waka's like, oh, okay. But only after things calm down. And Riku's like, things will never calm down. Everyone uh, is, is like doing what they want to do. And Yuna's putting her dreams on hold because of it. So Yuna is eventually like, okay, you know what? I, I I want to see this through. I want to go on this journey. And even quotes Titus saying, I know it's selfish, but this is my story. Um, and Riku knew that Yuna would want to go, so she brought something, a travel change, or, or a costume change for her to travel in so she can travel incognito. Uh, and Waka leaves to get Lulu, but Yuna decides that she'd rather just leave immediately. And uh, they take off. And that's the end of Eternal Calm. Uh, so, I mean, right from the outset, it's important to note that this has had some different versions over the Mm -hmm. years. Uh, apparently the original Japanese version of this, it was very blatant that it was Titus in the cage. That it was Titus that was imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Uh, later updates, including the one that is in the remaster, has a person that looks like Titus, but is dressed a bit differently and sounds a little bit different and all that. It's just a rough 
approximation mm. of Tidus, let's say, uh, for reasons that we'll get into as we play Final Fantasy X-2. But it's weirder to me that if this thing existed before, theoretically, before any plans got into works for an actual sequel to Final Fantasy X, there are so many things this introduces. Mm -hmm. It's just like, hey, here's a bunch of factions that are like rising up within Spira, and they all want Yuna's attention, and they all want different things, and here's characters that we're going to name and introduce, and here's an entire quest start off for these characters. And like, Mm. if this is supposed to be sort of a putting the bow on it, like, oh, Yuna's now going to go on a never-ending search for Tidus. Uh, You know, maybe they'll be together one day that feels like a weirder note to leave it on than the one we had at the end of 10 where it was just Titus swimming up in mm-hmm. unnamed water somewhere you know it's it's right. a really bizarre note to put on this yeah it's i'm willing to like believe that maybe this was put out without plans for what Ten Two was ultimately going to be and ma- that mainly is because like the Titus model swap like that like yeah. if like, the, the specifics of what they were going, going to do, I, I believe, mm-hmm. might not have been totally nailed down. I don't believe for a second that they had no intention or had no, like, plans in place to possibly make a 10-2. Because it is, like... I mean, fucking granted, like like I said earlier, like, the equivalent thing that they put out after the remaster uh, ends in a similarly, like, direct lead-in kind of way, but, like, that was fucking eight years ago at this point and they haven't made that game yet. So I maybe, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't get how you put something out into the world and not expect a reaction the way that they got, because you're again, like you said, it's not even just like general, what did everybody do after it was over? It's like, no, you like directly led into a new story. Like this Mm -hmm. isn't just, you know, this isn't just, like, the fucking text epilogue you put at the end of a fucking Fallout game that says when, or where everybody went after the fact. It's bizarre. Yeah. And it's it's even stranger considering that I feel like this cutscene, this thing, was not super uh, apparent, I guess you would say. Because back when I played these games, when I first played Ten Two. I had no idea this this thing existed. Like, I legitimately... Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was actually... I've known of it in the years since, but this is the first time I've actually sat down and watched the whole thing. Uh, and my number one takeaway was, like, that was a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> that was... That, that felt like it was a 10-minute cutscene that could have just been a 2-minute cutscene instead. Like, there was, there was just a lot of info in there that just quickly becomes unnecessarily... Like, unnecessary, irrelevant, or just feels like they're trying to lay threads out for a game that will eventually do it better. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then also 10-2 feels like it starts with the player feeling so lost if they don't know any of this. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. we're we're doing a thing now and we're looking for spheres. And if you don't know that Yuna is obviously hunting four spheres for a very specific purpose, for a very specific, like with an end goal in mind, it's just a very sudden jump all of a sudden, like not mm. to mention, you know, the things that will happen in the intro of 10 that aren't even technically related to Eunice quest, but just the way that Spira is different. Let's say, right. uh, I mean, and- it does like, 
Oh, you can go. You can finish. I, I was just gonna say it feels it feels jarring because I was going into this cutscene expecting okay maybe there's going to be more of a through line established between ten and ten two to kind of explain some of these things, maybe even potentially explain you know certain characters and how they got together and kind of how the world has changed in two years, and then if anything I got into this game and I was like wow, uh, that didn't do anything that that <laughs> I've, I'm. Mm-hmm back at square one again with even more questions than I had before. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't even know. Because, like, I mean, I, I look at, like, okay, ignoring Ten Two as a concept for a second. I, I look at this and, like, it kind of answers broader questions that ten, the original Ten leaves open in terms of, like, how is Spiro going to move forward? Because, like, you know, it brings up, like, the Youth League and New Yevon and, like, these two, you know, they're not... But they don't explain what either of those things are. Well, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they do... doing. Well, that's that's not totally true. Because, like, what's the face when Yuna's talking to him at the temple? Like, he's talking about, like, how New Yevon is basically people trying to hold on to the past to, to some degree and not, like, maybe not leave everything that Yevon was behind because maybe there was some value in it where the youth, like, is the, as it, as it sounds like, the younger generation that is not, like, doesn't feel as beholden to these traditions that they, you know, weren't. They didn't spend, you know, all this time you know, really dedicating their lives to, and they want to find new ways forward. And I think that's interesting in that, like, it shows that Spear wasn't just going to, like, naturally just find whatever was next for it after Yevon was gone and Sin was gone. And, every, like, you know, the foundation of, the, of this universe is gone, and there was going to be, like, some level of dispute. And I think that even even in a world where Ten Two didn't exist, that would have worked for me just because, like, I didn't need to see like the inner workings of each of these factions to understand what their existence meant. And well, I, I, that's my problem is I don't even see like, okay, so this is this grandfather is, is concerned that his son is joining up with the youth league. And so initially I'm like, Oh, are they like an extremist faction? Like what, what's the issue here? And he's just like, nah, they're just not new Yevon. I'm like, okay, then what's the difference? Like what, what, like I don't even understand like fundamentally what a group is like what it does. Like, is this just, is everybody joining a gang? Like, is that, is everyone wearing colors now? <laughs> and then one of the characters is even like, you know, why don't you start a group? And I'm like, is this just an arbitrary thing that just exists? Like people are just saying like today I'm a new Yevon member. <laughs> like that's what I'm saying is I don't fundamentally after this cutscene understand what any of these groups actually do or have to do with the rebuilding of Spira. If they said like, Oh, Kilika is under the, you know, is under the thumb of the Youth League, and there's a lot of, like, you know, radical thoughts and ideas coming out of there, but, you know, Bevel remains the home of New Yevon after Old Yevon fell. If they started introducing ideas like that and saying, like, give me a greater understanding of what these groups are rather than just being two idealistic differences that aren't even extreme, they're just like, Well, I mean, oh. I think that's where, like, that's where I think, like, the the fact that they quote unquote didn't have a sequel in mind at this right. point shows its face. Cause like you don't really, it doesn't really matter like the minutia of it. Like you just need to understand that there's like dispute about how to move forward. And I think that was, you know, completely isolated from what comes next. Like that's fine. Yeah. To me. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I suppose. Yeah. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing that exists. I, especially in the wake of 10 two now, it, it does have a feeling of being this separate, piece of fiction that just kind of exists yeah i get i i do think though and it, it leaves on the note that i think is what makes 
going into into like works so well for me is that like it is Yuna like you know, well Riku says it out loud she's like Yuna is having to still give herself to this mm-hmm. world even like she didn't literally have to give her life like she planned to but like her life has basically become still intertwined in like the future of Spira and like what all the other people want from her and all these factions like there's somebody that wants to marry her there's there's somebody that wants her that her to like join their faction and Riku just like everything that she wants is on hold like even if like she wants to like. She wants to go on this very, like, personal journey. Because, like, I think... She, like, she says, like, I know it's selfish, but this is my story. But I, and I think... Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this the last episode. It was just, like, Yuna learning that selfishness it can be, like, a virtue for herself mm-hmm. is what kind of, like, you know, catapults us into this next game in a way that I think is just, like, embodies the game of, of Tenchu as a whole. It's just, like, you know, it, it, we are going to get tied into some, you know, tied into some grander picture thing. But it, this is all about, like, what Yuna wants... When she, like, has... Basically, she's broken the cycle, but, like, now she gets to live life that she wants, even though everyone is still looking to her to be this, like, symbol for them because because she saved the world. And her kind of being like, okay, fuck, I don't give a shit about even what Waka and Lulu are saying. I don't give a shit what Yaibo's saying. I just want to go now. Riku, let's go. Like, mm-hmm. that sort of... That, that idea of, like, that, that new vision of who Yuna can be now that she is, you know, in a not subtle way, like completely detaching herself from like what the world wants wants of her just works so well for me and i don't think that you necessarily need a paternal calm to like set that foundation because i don't i didn't i don't think i watched internal calm until i was at least a little bit older um like on youtube or something because i didn't have it when it first came out because it came with like i think it came with playstation magazine like on a disc or something um which is like i guess like one of the ways that you get shit out back then um where now that would be like released on youtube by square and yeah shit like that um but yeah, I think if nothing else, like it, it does feel like weirdly incomplete and like kind of doesn't really elaborate on a lot of these things. And I think you know for whatever it's worth, like Tensu does. But I think even if Tensu did not had not come, I would at least probably have been mostly content with the world building stuff. It's just the fact that like oh they fucking tease that Tidus might still be alive in some way. And acts very and, casually about it. Yeah, and didn't think people would care. Yeah. Enough to like merit a sequel. I don't know. It's very weird. And and um, having Waka be like, oh well, I guess it kind of looks like Titus, but you know, you got more important stuff to do. Like they really, you know, and maybe this is another effect of they just made this thing to make this thing. But Waka doesn't really act like Waka in this section either. Like mm-hmm. it's a very it's already kind of weird that he's basically playing like the secretarial role to Yuna. You know, he's like Yuna's handler essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's weird because Waka's not really that type of dude. Like a, I, I would not expect this dude would ever be able to handle any sort of schedule or calendar or anything like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also like just the idea that he's the one who sees that Titus may still be alive and is the naysayer is mm-hmm. super bizarre to me. And I get why they maybe didn't want to have Lulu being that character, but I would see Lulu filling that role better yeah. of being like, you don't know what this is yet. You're not sure. But then again, we're, we're also approaching the event horizon of Lulu just being <laughs> put mm-hmm. in the background for these games. So, um, is this the point where, where Waka's voice actor switches over to? Cause I think, I, I, I want to say at some think point happened. it's a different voice actor. I don't believe so. Um, 
I'm looking this up now to be sure. Uh, he's got a different one in Kingdom Hearts, but it's still John DiMaggio through. Was Mania that really stuff. was that really John DiMaggio in that? Because he just sounded different. Uh, maybe it was a weird day for him, but <laughs> uh, he just sounded very different. Uh, <laughs> where I was like, this uh, this this is someone trying to put together a very compelling Waka impersonation. <laughs> is, is my impressions. I don't know. Sorry, John, if you listen. <laughs> um. But yeah, it's, I, I think the most exciting part for me is definitely where Yuna's like, let's just go. And, and even the part mm-hmm. where she's like, let's go before I can think of reasons right. not to go. And uh, it all leads into, we're, we're like two for two now on banger openings of games because 10-2 really does open. Like, Fucking whips! This, Goddamn! This game just has style. Like it just mm-hmm. has... So it's it's hard to like pin down exactly what it is because I think ten has a very distinct style too, but it feels a bit more fantasy. It feels a bit mm. more RPG in the traditional sense. Like it feels like you know they have some general ideas. I love how the menus in those games have you know very either ancient looks like the sphere grid all looks like a mm. slab. Or uh, they have very, like, aquatic themes. Like, the main menu has a lot of, like, aquatic look mm. to it. Um, and, and I like that. But it still feels very fantasy. It still feels very... Right. It's also grounded, I think, in what spirit is at that point. Whereas, mm. as we get into ten two, and I really feel like starting off here with a literal fucking pop concert mm-hmm. in Luca with a robot drummer and musicians flying around on Machina and blasting music uh, is is a way to just say this, this is Spira when it has time to exist and has also like shed mm-hmm. the uh, concern about Machina and like the unnecessary restrictions on them. Like this is a flourishing Spira. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I mean, was, well, first we got to talk about everyone else that gets introduced. We see... Riku, first off, uh, in her new duds, her very, like, somewhere between Yuffie and I, I just a swimsuit mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in her thief outfit, uh, doing her thing, beating some people up and kind of I, I like her her bit where she's like using the binoculars to watch the concert and kind of like bobbing her head along and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riku's really fun in this game. I like Riku a lot. Yeah. Um, we also meet, uh, do we see pain here? Is that, no, we yeah. see Yuna next, right? Well, yeah, I guess in terms of the order of people. Yeah. 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 I'm just well, trying. Well, actually, no, pain was in the first shot. Pain was in the first shot. Okay. Pain yeah. is the weird one. We'll, we'll touch on pain a little bit, but pain is a new character, an interesting character. I think, uh, mm. definitely has an entrance, does the whole slide down the rail and all that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get YRP in position. It's Showtime Girls. And the concert starts. And Yuna shows up. And initially she's in her summoner garb. And very almost like timid looking. And then as the music starts to pick up. She walks forward. And all this machina and sphere stuff starts to whirl up around her. And she spins. And then comes out in this concert attire. And is singing and dancing. And they're just doing a whole goddamn pop concert with yuna as 
the pop star. It's like very it fucking whips. It's, it's so good. It's like idol shit, you know, like mm-hmm. J-pop idol shit. But it it really does work. It's really good. It's mm-hmm. it's fun. It, it's definitely a way for them to say, look, we are doing something that is not Final Fantasy X. <laughs> right. Because, like, you know, that game started with a Blitzball show. And yeah. this was like... You know, completely different. Like, nothing like anything we'd ever seen in 10. Because, like, I mean, there's music. There's, like, musicians in 10. But, like, you've never seen a fucking pop show in, like... Especially, like, you know, it does, like, the not-subtle thing of, like, you know, like, shedding her summer's garb to something completely new. And, like, it... I mean, it has, like, you know, there's, like, a larger conversation around the game of, like, sexual liberation. It's, like, a meaningful piece of world-building. Um, but, yeah, it's just, like, you compare the opening to 10, which is, like the Blissfall Stadium being fucking destroyed by sin, and here, the, the, I guess, for lack of a better term, like, the evil of it comes from, like, a much smaller place, and it's not about, like, completely, like, destroying and wiping out people. It's about, like, how this is actually factoring into one, like, a person's more personal place in this world instead of just being this fucking cataclysmic thing that comes in. It's fucking, it's, like, real emotions, and it's the song, and it's, like, one of the fucking, like, I, I have this, like, this opening is, like, stamped into my brain to the point where like if i listen to the song away from it like i still hear like all the dialogues happening like over the song in my head like and how it's like like some of the cutscenes actually like into the rhythm of the song in a way mm-hmm. um because i was listening to it like you know before we started recording the show and like i still hear riku like fighting with the guard in my head and pain also doing it later yeah it's just like i this lives rent free in my fucking brain <laughs> Almost twenty years later, this fucking scene is just so fucking good. I like that you point out the Blitzball thing because it is, you know, a, a comparison between the two. They're both these events that happen in these arenas because of all this amazing Machina and stuff. But whereas one is interrupted by the destruction caused by Sin, here that doesn't happen. Like everything's cool and and no one's concerned or anything. Like there's a sense of a return to what they had before the existence of sin. That is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, before things get a little weird, uh, Riku and pain land on the platform that Yuna's on and start telling her, Hey, give it back already. And Yuna talks back and suddenly it's very much not Yuna's voice. And, two goons show up and she's like, you want in on this number? Then show me your moves. And, uh, we're into a battle and this game just no tutorial just drops you right in. It's like, Hey, figure it out. And it's kind of bold the way that this game drops you in. And especially coming from 10 doesn't tell you, Hey, by the way, this is not turn-based anymore. Right. (laughs) it's just like hey figure it out and this is it feels like one of the fastest rpg battle systems Mm -hmm. i've played barring you know modern action rpgs and and the way that final fantasy has gone now you know it's not it's not quite into the realm of seven remake where it is just a straight up action rpg but this is darn close to it yeah because like it, it is mostly ATV again, at least in like on paper. But when you actually like at, at the speed at which it's going, and also the way that it wants you to kind of like overlap turns in a way, like because uh, basically your attacks 
as they combo will get progressively more powerful. So like it wants you to, there's a lot more uh, time you spend thinking about timing and how you can best combine like Riku and Pain's moves so like you can maximize damage output uh, based on like how, how long it's going to take you to charge it for the next turn. And that is something that, like, you know, that was not even in consideration with 10 because like you were, you know, it was a more standard turn-based battle system. So like your combinations were like, what were you going to do after you like after okay, see this attack once, and then you've got mm-hmm. Riku next, and like you've got to think, consider what can you do to follow up that versus here, like a lot of the you're like you got to be going so fast to like try and even match up, say like a more uh, an, an MP costing ability like uh, Pain right now has some uh, elemental attacks, like uh, mm-hmm. like I think she starts out with just power break. Which is the the Orin thing? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get Flame Tongue until later. Okay, but even then, like she, like you have to get to her turn, but then she has to charge up for that, and then so like maybe you can get two hits in with Riku before she even gets that one off. But if you you time the second one properly, you can get more damage just because you've chained onto that, mm-hmm. and it's just very cool. Like it's, it's it's you have to you can't do a lot of like sitting and thinking and strategizing in the same way that you could in ten, but it is still just as strategic in the way that you're having to. Uh, know the timing of when your attacks are going to go off and how they interact with each other in very very short moments of time yeah it's it's also i feel like when a fight goes wrong in this game it goes wrong very very fast Mm -hmm. uh i have had at least one fight where uh one character goes down and then i'm constantly trying to res them only for the other character to then go down and then it's it turns into Mm -hmm. just a just absolute route very fast yeah it, uh, it can snowball super quick like i there were like points like that where i had like unit down but i also like trying to keep pain alive at the same time while using riku to revive what i would do mm-hmm. i would switch i would have pain like defend or use sentinel while i was using riku to try and revive yuna because you have to like you have to manage everybody at once in a way that mm-hmm. you did not have to in 10 yeah and there's just you know the nice part is they give you some characters early on that feel kind of autopiloty. And so you can kind of gradually sink into the idea of having these different characters with these different abilities. Uh, And we'll talk about that as we get to that specific stuff. But uh, this opening alone just feels very hectic, but not in like a bad way. It it Mm. feels like a good, like things are popping off and you're being like thrown into the driver's seat right right off the bat. Mm. Um, So as we continue chasing... They run off into Luca. We're now in that that circular area of Luca that you might remember from when we were chasing after Eunice captors in uh, in Luca in Final Fantasy X. And we're chasing after them. Also, something to note before we get further is that this game is just campy as hell. Uh, I love it. It's so it good. Just the most camp of... I, I thought I knew what it was going to be like going in. And then I was playing and I was like, Oh, this is even more than I remember. It is Mm -hmm. just cheesy and people are throwing out these one liners all the time and just overacting and overreacting. Mm -hmm. And like, like nothing is subtle in this game. Right. And like that, that whole, that whole like exchange on stage where, you know, she's like, one of those numbers and show me, and then Payne's like, think you can keep up with us. And I was like, oh my fucking God, I love it so much. So gay. So fucking over the top. I love it so much. 
yeah, everyone's like striking poses and one-liners and and it's yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's but it's again, this is establishing Tentu as this is a different game. This is a different tone. This is a different world and it works really well. Right. And I mean cuz like broadly 10-1 was like a pretty fucking dour game for the majority yeah. of things. So like yeah. You know, you, you lead it with, you know, this fucking concert and all these characters, like, with all their quips and all their jokes and all this fucking great... It's just... A lot of people complain about this game. It's like, think it's totally jarring. It's like, no, I just think it speaks to, like, everyone is t- was tired of being fucking sad all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, they've had this, you know, extreme reaction to the world being safe again. And I think the sort of... The conflict of this opening comes from something that is not as fucking all-encompassing the sin is relevant. And I think it makes all of these things work together for me. And, mm-hmm. yeah. And it, the other thing I want to know, like, I, once we get control of our characters and we can start to open up menus and things like that, even just the menu design of this game is so different from mm-hmm. 10. And there's tech and there's, like, almost this synthwave, like, mm-hmm. style to it. Um and, and it's worth looking up the the artwork that uh, Yoshitaka Amano did for this. Amano has been doing art for Final Fantasy forever. And uh, those illustrations are infamous. But I think some of the stuff for Ten Two is some of Amano's most interesting stuff because it's just so different from what we usually expect. It's not these you know, gods and primals and summons and aeons, but it's like just people hanging out. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's YRP, like having a good time and striking poses and stuff like that. It's really, it's fun. It's interesting. It's, it's different. I feel, I feel like it all just feeds into this RPG that just like Ken was saying, has a different tone. Like there are so many RPGs that can feel samey, I think, but there aren't a lot that I can think of that have this as, mm-hmm. as their, their thing uh and it makes me want more it makes me want more of them uh we take off down the lucas streets and if you are good at remembering things about video games you stop and talk to <laughs> a uh a, someone dressed in a moogle outfit who heals us and and then we run off on our way uh, and if you are not good at remembering things about video games, you forget to do that and ruin the ability for you to have a perfect run on your first run. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I guess we could talk about yeah, we, the we should percentage talk about here. Stuff. Yeah. So yeah, this game has like a, a completion percentage thing that goes on to the game. And like, it is more so than probably any other RPG that I can think of right now, more like minute and like the smallest thing can throw that number off. For the mm-hmm. entire game, like like this, which is like it's infamous. This particular thing where you have to go find this person that's dressed up in a, as a Moogle, uh, off the beaten path of where you're chasing you as imposter, and uh, that because like you cannot know that that was even a thing until like several hours later, and by then you you're well and into like the, the game proper, and yeah, it was just something that I knew ahead of time that so I went and did it, and I don't, I mean just like. If you're playing along, you're free to do what you want, but I don't think that you and I are going to be getting 100% in this because, like, there are some late-game things along, like, I guess, like, along the line of things in Ten One that we did not do, and because I don't... Like, there's some, some things in this game that I've never completed in the mm-hmm. past however many years just because, like, they are that high-level play, final boss, final dungeon thing that is 
you know, like it might have something interesting at the end, but it's like, holy fuck, I don't have like the time or the patience to do that. Mm-hmm. And so we will get enough to get the quote unquote good ending, but not the perfect ending. And we'll talk about the perfect ending when we get there. Just like look it up on fucking YouTube. And it's only it's yeah. one scene. It's whatever. Yeah. Uh, the nice part is that the difference between the perfect ending and the good ending is just one cutscene, so yeah. it'll be easy enough for us to look that up later. And and like Kim was saying, we're not really aiming for that. I'm personally just aiming for the good ending, which I think mm-hmm. just requires a fairly high completion percentage, but not 100%. And yeah. then making some very specific choices at certain points in the game, which are thankfully, those ones are easier to signpost and... Uh, mm-hmm. pay attention to as they go and obviously we have guides that we are following along found a really good one on game facts today that has like mm-hmm. html things in it and all that that uh i'm i'm very happy i found so uh it'll it'll be one of those playthroughs but uh yeah we'll address everything i mean that's going to be a running theme for more stuff as we get into like last mission for 10 and all that that some of this stuff the content to story uh, ratio is just going to be off in a way that mm-hmm. it would behoove us more to maybe look some of these things up and experience them as the cutscenes and not necessarily as playing the entire however many 120 hours or so it would take to play those specifically because the experience would not really be markedly changed by that. So uh, it's what it's what works. We do what works around here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so as we chase after, we we do some more r- kind of random encounter fights. They're pretty straightforward. Uh, we we get a little bit of an opportunity to experience what these two characters, uh, Riku and Pain, play like in their current versions, which is mostly just uh, you know Riku is still the thief rogue type character, very fast, can steal things. Uh, I was actually stealing a lot of stuff in a later mm. section because you can get some good equipment and stuff from stealing on certain characters. And, uh, pain is like a mix of Titus and Orin almost like, yeah, definitely the sword swinger, the damage dealer has some of Orin's moves like power break, but also, uh, carries elemental affinities and stuff and kind of just acts like a warrior type mm. character. Uh, but also kind of then is, you know, also your beefiest character can take the most hits. Uh, so it's it's kind of a mix. And we'll round it out because as we catch up to uh, the imposter and her goons, a person uh, also shows up. Uh, we, we Well, so what the name of these goons is like Logos and Omni, I think. Um, or me. The, or was it? Or me. Ormi, uh, Logos and Ormi, like this, this comical, like gun wielder and shield bro show up and they're like, ha ha. And then the person, uh, runs up behind him and it's Yuna. It's actual Yuna shows up and does a big old flip over the top of them and shoots at their feet, makes them dance, lands, uh, right next to, to Riku and pain and the YRP shows up. The whole crew is here. Uh, and we are going to do a whole ass fight with the three members of YRP. So we have our party now. We did it. We assembled the party <laughs> in the first <laughs> 10 minutes of the game. <laughs> and they, they gave Yuna a gun. Two guns. Two Yuna's guns. She's got two, two whole she guns. She mostly uses only one, though. But like, she, there are certain points where she does have two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, Which uh, is like... 
fucking wild. Like, I remember, like, before the game was, like, out here, and I and I knew it. Like, it was just, was, like, blew my mind, the notion that Yuna was switched over from being the healer or the white mage to a gunner. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, that is, you know, an example of, like, and, I mean, this is broadly Yuna's thing. And I think the game's uh, theme in general is that, like, these people can be different now. Like, they're beholden to things that they were before. Like, our expectations can be subverted about who they would become and how they would exist in this world. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, Yuna, Yuna shoots guns now. And she has, like, you know, an outfit that is not... You, like, if you'd shown that to her two years ago, she would not have been caught dead in it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So it's a fantastic entrance. Even, like... It is, like, you know, one of those things where, like, you get a lot from that, that first scene with at the concert. And, like, I don't think that any of the... the uh, by that not actually being Yuna on stage, I don't think that you're, like, any of the impact of that is undone. I just think it think that she, she kind of gets like two really powerful, striking entrances that show how much not only the world but she has also changed. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, like we're gonna you know get later in the game, like Yuna doing a concert is not something that was like off the like off the wall that people wouldn't have expected in this world. So it is still even if it was an imposter, like is an expression of who Yuna is in this world now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Yuna's bit of a celebrity at this point, <laughs> and uh, for for obvious reasons. But it is cool that we get to see her. I I do feel like pretty quickly the game then takes her out of the gunner role and moves her into a different role that we'll get into. Uh, I felt like I did not play much of this early section with Yuna as a gunner, um, mm. but also all that being said, like. I, once once we start to touch on it, I, I think the idea of having three characters be your party and then having them just kind of swap roles and swap jobs uh, is not only, you know, like foreshadowing the ideas that would later come up in, in stuff like Final Fantasy 13, mm-hmm. but it's just such a cool concept. I mean, it's also, I believe Final Fantasy V uses, like it's it, it also feels like a callback to older Final Fantasies where Mm. you would make a party that was just made up of characters who had jobs. And then eventually they became named characters and you would make a party out of the named characters that were in your party. And we had kind of the more, once we got to six and seven, like that sort of idea of each character fills a very specific role and they perform that role. And if you want to use a different character, you swap to that character. But not only does this feel like a really cool callback to that, it's just an exciting way to have, this core group of characters that feels like they are growing in power and growing in their abilities and experimenting with new things and becoming stronger fighters. I think there is an element of, okay, you know, Titus is getting better and better at casting speed magic and, and hitting things with his sword and all that. And there's, there's value in that, but we've already kind of seen those, you know, arcs for at least for Yuna and Riku like them becoming warriors and fighters and guardians and you know summoners in their own right and having it start here with okay now Yuna's doing something else like Yuna's mm-hmm. not a summoner slash mage anymore she's a gunner or she's right. a mage again but a different kind of mage like a red mage or something like mm-hmm. that and it's cool. It's a cool concept. And also mm-hmm. it just gives them excuses to dress all these characters up in different ways and come up with really cool costume ideas for 
all their different classes and things like that. And that, mm. that is also, I think just a really cool concept. Uh, something yeah. that I feel is even reflected in, in stuff like final fantasy 14 with the idea that your main character in, in 14, the one you play can be any class in any time and can just swap around and change outfits and things like that. Uh, mm. It's just cool. It's fun. It's, yeah. it's a fantasy world. And you're basically playing like, like to cheaply say you're playing dress up, but you kind of are. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. It's a fun thing. Um, yeah. And it, and it also like, I mean, it, it allows you to, I mean, we kind of have not really skipped over, like we've, we've skipped over what the actual in the universe class, thing is. Yeah. Or, well, oh, the in universe thing. Yeah. Well, okay. Let, let's, let's finish the, like, let's talk about the gunner class here. Cause like, she like Yuna does kind of I mean like she has range damage of course but like the kind of she doesn't do like as much damage as a warrior would like as pain does but she is more like kind of a you kind of like trick shots with the with a stress fear like you you'll learn as she goes on but like she also has like the trigger happy move which is one of the mm-hmm. only weird it's like it's, you have like a short section of time where you press R one repeatedly to just shoot and you don't do a lot of damage but the thing that that can help do is it can keep a chain going long enough to like if another character is just about to reach the point mm-hmm. where they can do an action again and by doing that and like by increasing the chain like you know up to like eight or nine times at that point you can like pain can come in with like a really powerful final hit um and so that's, what, that's generally what i tend to do with the gunner is like until you know she gets more stuff where like she can k- kind of like it's almost like they're not elemental based per se but like she has have shots that do certain kinds of different like you know like she has something that is scaled to do like a fourth of a person of an enemy's life or mm-hmm. is scaled to her level in some way you know just like these w- weird kind of different ways of infusing again not elemental stuff but more just like different types of effects that spells and stuff usually have in final fantasy um so it's a kind of cool like really versatile thing which I mean, you know, the warrior gets, like, you know, the elemental stuff, but, like, in terms of, like, what it's there to do, it does, it hits things hard. That is, like, what the warrior is meant to do, where Thief, you know, doesn't hit very hard, but is fast, is able to steal things. I think with all the dress fears, like, they hone in on things well enough where, like, you know, all the characters are able to be very versatile by the nature of the system, but each role feels very honed in on a specific idea in a way that makes them worth switching to, or maybe, you know, makes them not uh more like you you can very clearly see when something's not going to be useful in a situation and it's better to switch to something else Mm -hmm. yeah every role feels very specialized and it gives them i think those specializations and the fact that you can freely switch among them versus having to stick to say you know seven archetypes like you did with final fantasy 10 and you know where that got to really dive into what those characters do and how they form a cohesive party and the ways that they can mess with that throughout the game. Uh, here you get more opportunity to see how roles can diversify out into various different things. And then also, you know, create those situations where yes, uh, a character is going to be obsolete here. Like there's no reason to want to play X role in Y fight. So just swap off it and go to something else. Cause you have that capability right. and that's exciting. Like it's, it's a, yeah. it, it it's a cool battle system that I like a lot. I'm still trying to master some of the chain stuff. I'm really not very good mm. at it right now, but yeah. <laughs> we're getting there. It, yeah. And I think in a, in its own way, it is, it does feel like it's different, but it feels kind of like in line with the philosophies of the original game as well. Just like, it's like 
still requiring you to like switch on the fly as things are happening and like understand mm-hmm. how something's going to affect and how it's not. And I think it differs from like say the paradigm shift in thirteen because those were you were switching the entire party's roles at once because like yeah. you were trying to like it, it's more like the party has a formation based on a situation versus like thirteen was about understanding how all of these things work together to form a very specific strategy where Tenchu is about being so open-ended that you're constantly able to make strategies of your own. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is why I prefer it, even though I think the, the Predom system is just like this very, very tight thing that 13 does very well. But I think, just broadly, I think Tenchu, I always found more interesting ways for my characters to work together or just like, you know, set things up and react in different ways than 13. And that's why, like, I, and we'll, as we continue to talk about this, we'll kind of, talk about where we kind of land in terms of like what characters we have doing different things but i am broadly just i I enjoy the system more because it it allows me to play in ways that it almost feels like the game wasn't anticipating Mm -hmm. yeah it's it just feels so open-ended like you were saying it's just so I'm, i'm sure the characters that you go to for certain skills or abilities might even differ from what i go to mm-hmm. like i remember using riku as a white mage a lot mm-hmm. um and yuna would kind of bounce around different stuff early on whereas pain started out for me as like the warrior but then also quickly became my black mage too mm-hmm. and, and it's just like yeah. It, it's so open-ended and, and open to exploration. I think that's fun. That's exciting to yeah. look at at the start of a video game. Yeah. I, I mean, just kind of like broadly where I, how I tend to play the game. It's like, I kind of tried to, like, I, I like the, the gunner, the warrior dynamic initially. And I like, I kind of tried to keep them at least adjacent to that in some ways and kind of like yeah. flex onto other things as I need to. Cause like, I, I would say like primarily I use, I still use Yuna as a gunner, but she also ended up being like, you, I I don't know if you would have gotten far enough when you played it the first time. Like, did you ever get the, the Lady Luck dress sphere, which is basically uh, like gambling the dress sphere? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that that became one of the things that I primarily used as Yuna as, for Yuna as well. And then I also used the Songstress one, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Oh that yeah, Songstress like, for plot me relevant all the time. Um, where, we, yeah, we let's, let's get into forward. It. Yeah, let's move forward and talk about it a little bit. So like we we finished the fight with the with the two backup buddies. And the Yuna imposter finally shows her face and, and then takes off her face. <laughs> um, mm. She has something of Yuna's called a grid, which is the the garment grid, the, the dress spheres and stuff. It's the whole thing that people can use in this world, essentially like uh, glamours in Final Fantasy XIV to like change their appearance. And then also, I guess, change their abilities and, and their, you know, sort of battle capabilities along with it. Um she throws the the grid to Yuna and reveals her true face as LeBlanc, who is going to kind of be the rival team for us for a mm. little bit here. Um, and that's when the game teaches us about how you can switch dress spheres in battle. Uh, there's, there's kind of a wind-up time for it, and they do a magical transformation into the new uh dress fear which is nice because it does give you a wait time which is great mm. <laughs> like a little moment to just kind of collect your thoughts for a right. second uh but you also get these great intros and the first one you get is yuna changing into the songstress which is her concert outfit and all that and she serves like a bard type function where she uh can cast status uh mm. 
at least at the start, like status debuffs on enemies so she can put darkness on mm. all of the enemies. And I think the other one I got while we were playing this section was uh, one that does silence. Mm. Uh, and I think she eventually gets buffs as well uh, yeah. that buff the team. She's very much a bard type character where she is focusing on stat buffs and debuffs. Um, and so I, I like the songstress class a lot because of that, because I like to use status buffs mm-hmm. and debuffs a lot. And I also like, I think it's a really interesting class because it's not really a damage class or yep. a healer class. And so it has to have a very specific focus. It has to have mm-hmm. a very specific job to do, uh, at least early on. And mm-hmm. I was enjoying it because of that, because I felt like, okay, when I switch to this character, I'm making a conscious decision that, the buffs or the debuffs are more important to me than say the gunner damage that, you know, could be putting right. out. Uh, and, and it feels like you're making really cool, interesting decisions on the fly because of that. Right. And, and, it's, and it's like we were saying earlier, like it's so focused, like and there's no like standard attack, like Lulu and Yuna, mm-hmm. even though they were mages in the first game, were able to just like, you know, whack somebody in the head with the staff. But like mm-hmm. here, like the white mage, the black mage, the songstress, like these don't have like just even a standard attack, even not even one that's like, you know, minimal damage, but it's like a way to take a turn. Like you have to, like you, you have to switch to these with intent, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. And I, the other thing, I'm glad you brought that up. I do like that. It feels like for every class, for every dress sphere, the options have been slimmed down. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I actually like that because it makes them yeah. feel much more focused and like you're switching to them to do something and not switching to a character and being like, okay, attack skill, special white magic black magic items (laughs) it was too much by by the end of of final fantasy 10 it was so much and when you're trying to work with this really fast battle system it's hard to feel like you've got control over it if you're traveling to like to move through so many menus and things like that so i think it works really really well um yeah so we 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 beat up leblanc and her dweebs (laughs) <laughs> and Yuna just can't stop dancing. <laughs> Yuna, <laughs> Yuna just feels the music. It's like someone else's excitement took over her. She just kept dancing. She loved it. Um, you know, again. And then she gets her like she gets her actual like title card, mm-hmm. which was good. I and I like that again. It reinforces that hey, these characters have grown. I, there's so much of them just having fun in this game. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, it's it's good. So we get picked up by the Celsius, the airship. And this is where we kind of get introduced to what the metagame structure of 10-2 is going to be. So Brother, one of our Albed pals from Final Fantasy X, who was the pilot of that ship in 10, the, the Fahrenheit? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 10 airship. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's kind of fun that this one is called the Celsius. Um <laughs> So brother is once again piloting, though he's got like a like a hot rod style setup to it. Like he's basically got a motorcycle, <laughs> handlebars, and and the Celsius itself looks way different from your classical airship design, which is cool. Um, there's also a kid genius on board named Shinra, <laughs> who <laughs> is a uh, sphere expert and a, our navigator buddy, who's kind of the straight man to the group, who's, who's mm-hmm. very much no nonsense. Because one of the things they introduced pretty early on is that brother has a massive thing for Yuna, just absolutely like 
number one Eunice stan <laughs> brother mm-hmm. like, over it's, here. Because, like, okay. Uh, okay. Like, I mean, I guess we have to talk about it. Because, like, there are points where, like, it just seems like he's just, like, really excited about, like, having his cousin on the fucking ship. And then it gets weird. Yeah. Like, I, and I, I had forgotten some of that shit. I'd actually like, forgotten the cousin part, to be yeah, honest that's, with you. That's Riku's well, brother. Getting, yeah. It's getting so much. Well, I, I always, yeah. To be honest, brother did not really register on my radar for most of Final Fantasy X because mm. he was not really much of a character for most of Final Fantasy X. Uh, and now that I'm remembering the cousin part, oh, mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. problems. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, yeah. There's that. It, uh, but I like the other two additions. I think Buddy is fun as as kind of the no nonsense character mm-hmm. to have around to balance it all out. And then Shinra is you know the kid genius, you know very secluded right. but super smart. You know fills that yeah. function of interacting with all the spheres and stuff too. Yeah, the game operates basically like with trios. Like their trios mm-hmm. are at the heart of this game, and the dynamics of all of them are varied enough where they're all. Um, you know, like you see how they complement each other, even when you know Yuna and her her group is kind of walking through and uh, being part of their whatever they've got going on. Because like you know, there's a walk in her too, and we'll we'll meet three others uh, throughout the course of Tensu that form like the fourth trio amongst them. Yeah, a lot of a lot of attention given to that. We also get a little bit of an introduction. So Shinra kind of shows us around, and. Uh, what this creature creator i don't know yeah, he mentioned so, it and i was like yeah i'm not gonna use that system so it's <laughs> it, it wasn't in the original game it was in part of the international edition so like when it came to when the hd remaster came here it was like the first time that anyone uh in the west well you know mostly imported had dealt with it and it does basically like it, it's similar to the same system they have in 13.2 for those that have played that game um where like you can have enemies but also like different characters in the game like, as your party but they take up a certain amount of space in your party so like there are some characters that can take up the equivalent space of like two party members and that's all fine and well and i'm sure like there are a lot of people that probably found some way to, to like break the game using that but i don't want other people on my team i want it to be Unariku and pain like yeah. those you know like the game and like the, the dress sphere system is like so foundational to how this game plays i don't want to complicate that by bringing other characters in that will have to replace other characters. It's just not what I'm here for. It's just a weird vibe to have for a game that is so about like the three party members and the dress fears dolls would be like, Oh, Hey, by the way, you can also put monsters on your team. And I was like, no, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and like it, like I said, it, it was part of the, the international edition. So like, it feels like they were just adding things because like it was, we're adding this, uh, we're, we're putting out this new version of this game. It needs to have new shit in it. And even, you know, when you talk to Brother here and he gives you the, uh, the Festivalist dress fear, that was not in the original game. Like, that was, mm-hmm. there, there are a few in the, the remaster that were not in the original game. And it feels like a lot of them are just kind of like, they're just put in there. It's like, here's this thing that you can have that was not, uh, you know, to, to spice things up a little. And it's like, no, I don't need this. This is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's whatever. We can also watch, uh, like, video spheres, essentially. That we, I think they're called treasure spheres or whatever, but... Uh, this lets us watch the one from Eternal Calm. Mm-hmm. So we have this here, although yeah. it doesn't feel like it's very clearly signposted that it's there. Right. Um, I mean, and I guess you haven't played past this episode, have you? 
Uh, no, I like okay. literally what well, you've seen me play is what I've played. All right, there is going to be like a plot point where it is viewed and shown to somebody, and the only it was weird because like I, I don't remember what it, I might have read it like on the back of the box or like in the the instruction booklet of the original PS2 game because like I knew that sphere existed, but I had uh, like I said I hadn't seen Eternal Calm, so like when I watched it here with Shenra, I was like, oh, that's what that was. That that is what has sent us on this journey. Um. So, and, you know, there's going to be a point later where Yuna talks to Riku and it's like, it all began when I saw the sphere of you. And mm-hmm. um, well, th- that gets into, like, Yuna's narration versus Tifus's, which we'll get to later. Um, so, like, I was like, oh, there's a sphere here, like, that has been referenced in multiple things here that has apparently set us on this uh, this new adventure. But it was not it made, like, it, like, Eternal Calm was, like, the most it was ever made, like, a huge deal of. Yeah, yeah. And and like you said, we can talk to Riku here to get like an entire recap of Eternal Calm, anyways. So mm. it's just a weird, weird thing again. <laughs> mm. uh, we also get introductions to some of the other characters. Buddy was apparently on Sid's airship in Ten, but Yuna doesn't remember him. <laughs> we have to learn All Bed all over again, mm. uh, and the way in which we get All Bed primers is kind of weird. Uh, it's like you like dig in the desert for them, if I remember right. You have to like dig in Beaconel Desert for them. I think there's some that you have to get that way. Uh, uh, I don't think it's like all of them because I think a lot of them you get through just talking to people and like being or like I, it's usually when things are involving Albed that it gets brought up. Because I got a ton of them right off the bat from talking to Buddy. He gave me like three or four of them, mm. and I wondered if that was because I. But but it didn't try to read my save file at all because I was like, oh, maybe that's because I had all the Albed primers from 10. And I was like, oh, it didn't try to read that file whatsoever. So I don't know what the case is there. But um, we can also try talking to Payne and we get like a mild introduction of just who exactly Payne is. And it's, you know, Payne just kind of joined the Gullwings a little while before Yuna and Riku did. And she's not talkative, and that's about mm. it. So, yeah, that's we are a sphere hunting group, which is apparently just a thing that has sprung up in the wake of all you know the Yemen mm. restrictions being lifted and all that. Is that there are these treasure hunters out there called sphere hunters that go looking for these things uh, to uh, steal them away, very Indiana Jones esque, uh, mm. and then you know bring them back and and sell them for cash and. I, I got to tell you, you know, outside of the framing that we have of they're looking for Titus and the sphere kind of sent them off. There's just a very, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, uh, we, we had had a problem over at blood God, uh, about trying to think of RPGs that were like cowboy bebop. And mm. I honestly, now that I've started playing 10 2, I would have put that on the list because mm. it, you know, obviously it's not the same setting, but it's that feeling of you're on a ship, you're a bunch of, uh, you know, people who are really skilled, but always seem to be down on their luck. And that, mm. that feeling of like, oh, the next big heist, the next big score, we've got an right. in on the next thing. And it's just that sort of, you know, jetting around. Persona was another one that I think came to mind. Persona Five specifically, and the idea of them doing heists and stuff like that, and kind of always bringing into trouble and mm-hmm. making things work through sheer luck and skill. And Tentu's just got this vibe. It's mm-hmm. it's a good vibe. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a fun setting for mm-hmm. an RPG that I, I like. I like it a yeah. lot. 
And also, like, I mean, the fact that Sphere Hunters has become the thing, it speaks to the fact that, like, people in Sphere want to know their past now. They wanted, they wanted the history mm-hmm. of the place that, like, mm-hmm. has been obscured for them for so long, because, and that'll come into things that we'll get to in, in, a, in a later episode. It's just, like, everyone realizes that the actual history of this world has been hidden away, and nobody really knows what, where they came from and wants to find out what that is. And, like, it, you know, it sometimes leads to some, like, quote-unquote, dead ends, like the ones that we're going to find later today. But um, it's just, like, you know, it, it speaks to, like, a new era that people are, like, now considering even what it means to be here now, that all the things that they thought were true were gone. Mm-hmm. So we can also talk to Brother and get a Festivalist dress sphere, which I guess mm. I picked up and didn't even remember that I had, uh, mm. but it's another new international thing. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the, like, there are a couple of dress spheres that do this where each, like, depending on who you use it on, they have different abilities. So, like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember, actually, because I've usually used the Festivalist with Riku. Because mm-hmm. I, I try to, like, put her in some more magic-based dress spheres because, like, I like the idea of her and Yuna both trying to, like, learn new things and do new things mm-hmm. in this game that they didn't before. Because, like, I think, yeah, okay, Riku has, like, the, these goldfish that she uses that are, like, elemental-based, and that's kind of her thing. Oh, okay. Where, let's see, what does everybody so do? So, by festival, I'm assuming it means, like, kind of Japanese festival. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, the yeah. goldfish is the thing where they scoop the goldfish out and put them in the little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to pull the fucking wiki page. But basically, yeah, like, there are a couple, and I know, like, the mascot uh, dress beard, which is, like, one, like, notoriously hard to get. Um, one of those, like everyone, they they are dressed as different mascots, and so they have different abilities depending on who they're who you're using it with. Which is like a cool idea. I wish that they had done maybe a bit more with, because um, I mean, there's also like the trainer one, which like each each of the part members has like a different animal that they're training, and mm. so like they have different abilities. Just like a cool idea that doesn't get capitalized on that much, but it, it is interesting when they do it. I think. Yeah. I think if they did it too much, it would become too confusing in the heat of the mm, moment. Mm. So having some that are standardized and are going to be, you know, you are going to swap to white mage and you're going to have white mage abilities like that is a little bit easier. And then you have other ones that are like, okay, this is the, like the specialization flex that this character has for this yeah. you know, route versus other ones. Um, we can also look around the ship a little bit. There's an engine room that's got items in it. Uh, cabin where we can shop and rest uh it's it's su- like surprisingly fleshed out ship there's like a bar and mm-hmm. uh the place where they have bunks is kind of more like a hotel than anything else it is yeah. alarmingly open air <laughs> that was the thing i kept thinking about i was like huh so they all just kind of like sleep next to the bar huh mm-hmm. okay cool like it, feel, it feels like an early like iteration of something like the normandy and mass effect like you know you've got this ship that's like your home base mm-hmm. that uh evolves over time yeah yeah for sure and there is an an aspect of like it's got homey touches but is also very much like a moving base and and so you have the engine room which feels very uh you know it's part of an airship but then you go into the cabin and it's a nice little area that everyone can kind of hang out in and, and talk. And it's all nice. Um, so after we've kind of explored around, taken a little bit of a rest and all that, we found some sphere waves at some ruins in Gagazet. And so when the faith disappeared, the clouds that shrouded Gagazet disappeared and a bunch of ruins were discovered up there. So we're going to go 
find out about those. That's going to be, by the way, this is the last section of, well, we got like a little bit after this, but this will be the last major part of 10-2. I realized we did not lay out how long this section would be. <laughs> um, we go to Gagazet and get dropped onto a very precarious set of ruins that Yuna almost falls off of, and Riku and Pain have to desperately pull her back up as brother yells at them on the comms and we we start off a running joke about disasterific <laughs> Riku just making up words uh-huh it's uh it's a start to this area mm-hmm. you know it's inauspicious start but <laughs> we also get introduced to another major departure from Final Fantasy 10 platforming the thing I wish that wasn't in this game. <laughs> well, it's not like, to, to clarify, it's not like platforming with like difficulty or like an, an intent to be like a sort of like roadblock that you have to overcome through skill. It's just like hold down the circle button and you will jump. So if you or hold don't, it down and, then and run she... at a ledge, you'll jump. Uh-huh. Okay, because I was trying to like time the button presses oh, no, to no, no, the no. ledge. No, 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 no. Okay. Just hold, hold down circle. Well, that makes my life a little bit easier. Or don't, because like there's some points where like she can just drop down to another level for right. like items and going off the beaten path and things. But uh, yeah, just hold down circle. Okay, well maybe I like it a little bit more now. But that's uh, I I just always have the the thing of her running up to the ledge and uh doing the little Ooh! on mm. on the edge of it when mm. you were supposed to do a jump and all that, and it's just. It always feels a bit finicky, and I think there are parts in this game where they do camera angle switches and stuff like that where it just feels weird. You know, it's something that's been smoothed out over time, but I had this a lot in 10 as well where, you know, you're holding a direction in one way and then the camera does a complete 180. Right. And they have, like, the old, like, like, Resident Evil-style static camera angle shit. Yeah, and it's like, do I change the way in which I'm holding the stick? Do I keep holding the stick? Mm-hmm. And it's just very, um, feels weird. And I noticed it a lot in a later section of this where you are pressed to move fast. But um, we we get to an elevator and <laughs> Yuna decides to touch the mechanism and it basically free falls us. Fucking Tower of Terrors us down. <laughs> um, and they're all just like freaking out and stuff. And uh, brother's like, oh, my God, what happened? What's going on? And, and Yuna's like, disasterific. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and brother's like, I'm coming down there. <laughs> uh, put a pin in that. But uh, it's, you know, we're, we're starting to establish this dynamic that these characters have. You know, Yuna's very much headstrong but still you know maybe a little bit clumsy maybe stumbles into things a little bit pain is kind of begrudgingly like oh here we go again Mm -hmm. like the whole time and and riku's super energetic and encouraging and stuff like that um while also kind of being a little bit of the comic release she delivers a lot of the the one-liners and things like that the little zings that happen and yeah it's there was a moment later that I think really, in fact, we're, we're about to be there. So we'll just get there. Um, as we push forward, we meet LeBlanc and her dweebs again. And LeBlanc has a line about, um, 
it, the YRP accuses her of like, oh, you're just following us so you can steal the treasure that we're coming for. And LeBlanc is like, please, you think I'd follow amateurs like you? And then her lackeys show up and one of them's like, this is a great play in LeBlanc. We're following them totally <laughs> led us right to some treasure. And it cuts back over and, and Yuna and Riku are kind of like giggling <laughs> to each mm-hmm. other. And like that was the moment where it really solidified for me that like, oh yeah, this is a very different game tonally, but it works mm. so well. Like having yeah. this sort of tone in this game. <sighs> it's a fun group. It's a fun mm. party. Yeah. And um it, like it's it's weird. Like I don't know what the most like the easiest comparison to make in terms of the tone. Like it feels like in a weird way and like both structurally and also tonally, like it feels kind of like Saturday morning cartoonish to me in a way. A little bit. That which is I mean it's not that's not a bad thing by any chance by any stretch, but also, like, there's bits of, like, Charlie's Angels. Like, that's kind of, like, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. dynamic of the three. Um, a lot more fun. Not as dour as ten. It is, like, I do think we need to kind of, like, acknowledge the uh, goth dress having elephant in the room. Because, like, yeah. pain is... I, I, I like, I'll, I'll admit, like, when I didn't know fuck all about this game, but, like, I saw that Riku and Yuna look clearly different. I thought pain was Lulu. And I think, like, aesthetically, like, she kind of looks like what I... Th- Along the lines of what I think Lulu would have looked like had she been in this game, like as a party yeah. member, yeah, because um, like it is the more uh, ad- adventure ready uh, outfit, but the same aesthetic of like goth, but also like you know to get like covered in belts and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like you know, some of the reasons that they have given over the years is that like if Lulu had been in the party, then Yuna would still have like looked to her in in a sort of like big sister role. In terms of like you know what should she like you know looking for guidance in things and instead of like kind of finding her own path and all of this which I think is fair enough but there's also parts of it where Lulu might have not been as uh, patient for like the shenanigans that everyone is getting around in this game uh-huh. which again like those are fair and I think broadly I'm okay with it because I do think by the time that Tenchu is over I I prefer Pain as a character to Lulu. But when you put that on top of what where we're going to actually get to with Lulu in this game, it just kind of stings. It kind of feels like, it kind of feels not great for where mm-hmm. that character ended up. Mm-hmm. But I think, like, it kind of had to be done for Pain to exist in this game and, like, have the role that she does. I, even if she is, like, kind of the, the newbie and, like, you know, this uh, party crasher, as it might feel to some people that are coming in, like, that wanted this to be, like, you know, the kind of fandom gimme like new iteration of Final Fantasy X that just mm-hmm. was just like oh I want to go see all my friends again I want to see all my faves and so I think pain occupies like a weird space for some people even if I think like by the time the ten two is over like it all together just kind of works out in its favor and I think it works for pain as well just to kind of like be you know like, like I said aesthetically she has the same style as Lulu but she uh, has a much different sort of place in this world and uh storyline than Lulu does even like I, I it's like I couldn't I don't see Lulu slotting into that story as well as yeah she does maybe aesthetically yeah and there is a part of me that does feel like if Lulu was here it would theoretically be a different dynamic mm-hmm. because Lulu was that type of character um and I think there's merit to that. I also think there's there's merit to the idea that Lulu doesn't necessarily need to end up doing what she ends up doing in this game either. Right. Uh, so it's it's kind of somewhere in between. You know, it's this idea of uh, 
I, I don't mind that they introduce this new character for YRP, and I think it works well, if only because if they had had Lulu in, then their like acronym would have been Larry, and I don't <laughs> know, it's not as good. <laughs> but uh, it's th- the fact that this character is, you know, not a dead ringer, but definitely aesthetically similar to Lulu kind of rubs a little bit of salt mm-hmm. in the wound, I think, for people who would have wanted Lulu to be in this game as, as right. an actual party member. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, well, we have a show off with LeBlanc again. Uh, this one, I actually was the one that I mentioned before that I, I ran into a situation where I had to reload and do the fight over again because I just was not paying attention to healing as much as mm. I should have and had kind of, you know, went down and then Riku went down and, you know, went down over and over again right. until I was like, okay, I'm restarting this fight. Yeah. Um, I think like some of that, some of that is because like you don't have a healer yet. Like there's no healing dress fear that we have at this point. Right. And so you are having to like rely on items and that's fine. Like, you know, that's totally you know manageable but it is like it does get to a certain point where you're realizing like oh i do not fill all the same roles at this point that i could have in the original Mm -hmm. game yeah uh but it it worked out well the second time and i mostly you know it's still feels pretty straightforward i I feel like there's a strategy to this first area which is like uh you know pain deals damage Yuna goes into Songstress and casts the darkness spell on them so they can't hit mm. you at all or have trouble hitting you. And then uh, Riku kind of jumps between. I had her stealing a lot because you can steal good mm. accessories from each of these characters. And then eventually just had her doing damage and setting up chains for pain. Mm. So um, yeah. you get into a good rhythm here. But the the more interesting part is once we beat them, they then kind of take off and start running for the top. And we're basically put into a race to the top against Mm -hmm. the LeBlanc crew. And at the outset, it's, you know, it's kind of exciting. It's Mm -hmm. again, it's this idea of, Oh, this is not Final Fantasy 10 where you're just kind of, you know, going on a pilgrimage, a very sad pilgrimage and all that's no, we're, we're racing this rival treasure hunting team for the sphere inside and all that. And, there's some treasure chests you can get off the beaten path here. Uh, and you definitely can, because I was worried that I was not going to be able to make it to the top fast enough, but mm. you, it's very easy to beat the LeBlanc yep. team to the top. Just don't um, die. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I went off on side paths to get treasure chests and got out there with like three minutes to spare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, cool, neat, fun. Uh, you fight a couple enemies on the way, but they don't count towards the time limit either. You just kind of wallop them, and there are like a few cutscenes that eat up some seconds. But other than that, it's it's pretty easy. And we get up there, and the LeBron- LeBlanc crew is hanging off the edge of the ruins. <laughs> uh, again, comic relief. It's a funny game. It's mm-hmm. I. I like that. I just walked up to the treasure chest and took the muscle band out of it and just like walked away. I was like, have fun with that. Um, then we get into an actual boss fight against a giant crab that's guarding the sphere we're looking for, uh, which is again, a pretty simple fight. I kind of use the same strategy I mentioned before, but it does have an interesting move, uh, sticky web, I think is what it was called, but it basically puts stop on all your ATB bars and freezes everyone. And I was like, Oh God, that's a real moment of panic. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a little thing that, you know, there will eventually be speeding ATB bars up and all that at some point. Mm -hmm. But, uh, 
you know, a little notion of, hey, we're going to be doing some interesting things with the fact that the system is active and, and fast. Uh, yep. This cool little thing. Mm-hmm. So we beat up a crab. Uh, we head on in and find the sphere on the pedestal looking like one of those things from breath of the wild where you, <laughs> it drips onto the the thing and you get the upgrades. Uh, we pull it out and LeBlanc shows up as like, Oh, it's a dud. Perfect for mm. the dole wings <laughs> and hobbles away. And I think it's Riku says youth wins again. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, and you get the mission complete. And there's a whole victory screen. And you wanted to talk about the music here specifically, right? Fucking my favorite video game soundtrack. Final Fantasy Ten Two. It's like really good. It's really really it's, good. And because like, I, I started making some notes because I was listening to like the victory music, and it was uh, it's it's got like jazzy soulful undertones to it. And I'm like, because mm-hmm. and you know, it even at the very beginning, like there was there was a pop concert and real emotion and another song that. that will be sung later in this game, like, fucking imprinted on my soul. It's just, like, it doesn't really get into... Like, it's, like, the original 10 was, like, you know, it had, like, these very, like, big orchestral songs and, you know, this, uh, like, you know, the Hymn of the Faith, like, was throughout that, too. But, like, Tensu never really gets into any of that stuff. It just kind of, like, when it gets into, like, you know, the more, like, emotional fantasy kind of RPG songs, it is generally, like, very stripped down. Like, it is piano, like almost exclusively and a lot of again like a lot of the songs um have stuck with me over the years more so than most games ever do like the uh the main mini music uh memories of light waves probably my fa- my single favorite like song in a video game ever and mm-hmm. in a weird way i tend to credit tend to with like opening up my musical ear at a young age because like i realized that even when i was you know, i'm not a musician anymore per se but like when i was like i recognize that a lot of my melodic tendencies came from the music intent to which is very eclectic genre wise but it has like a certain melodic a through line i guess in terms of how uh like i mean it's, it's got a lot of different different instrumentation but in terms of like having that same consistent melodic feel uh it's pretty universal and it's, um also like it kind of like i, I wrote here too like it illustrates like the passage of time between mm-hmm. tendency two in terms of like the tone of the music that these people make is different because like, mm-hmm. you know, the, that concert would have never happened in Spiro when Sin was still around and when Yevon was still in power. And it's, uh, it's all really fucking good. And I wish it was on Spotify or like anything, but I think there's probably, um, some licensing issues because the, the person that does Yuna's vocals is like from a band. And, mm. um, I think that yeah. kind of got in the way of a lot of it all, which I mean, that, that sucks, but also like, Put everything else on there too. Have you considered like if you can't put those two songs, can you put everything else on Spotify? I'll put it on iTunes. I don't fucking care. I'll buy it. Um, I have to go to fucking SoundCloud if I wanted to do it now. And nobody's got like a really uh, curated, consistent ten two soundtrack playlist anywhere on there that I've found yet. Um, it's very good. Really good shit. It's one of the only. It, I, I own the. Uh, we talked about it when Ash was on. Like the the piano, like re. Rearrangement collection, yeah, yeah, those I, I have the tensu, and that was one of the things. Like I was, I didn't have my own fucking money as a kid, but like I wanted that. Mm-hmm. So like, I have have memories of finding it on eBay, and somebody like, I think I had to import it from Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the most expensive CD I've ever fucking bought. I'll tell you that. Um, it's just like again, like my, like not even close. Like my 
favorite video game soundtrack is Final Fantasy X and mm-hmm. it plays into a lot of why this is my favorite Final Fantasy game just because like the music is so integral to it and you know it, it, it really shows in the way that like the song dress, dress fear is going to be integral to this game you've said a lot here that I agree with it's jazzy it's it's fun it's poppy it's soulful it's got a lot of good mix of stuff it really reinforces that feeling of this being a mixture of synth pop and Lupin and bebop and all these other different influences, that sort of big grand heist music, you know, mm-hmm. the things we associate with things like Lupin the third and cowboy bebop and oceans 11 and that sort of thing. It's got that sort of, uh, style to it that I, I think I've even been going back to older games like Kowloon high school and it has a similar approach. And I think this was a very popular, uh, style to take on, but I wanted to shout out in particular because obviously Nobuo Uematsu was not working on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very famously, you know, did a lot of work on Final Fantasy X, uh, all of which is absolutely incredible as we've gone over multiple times. But the crew that worked on this soundtrack, uh, Noriko Matsueda and Takahito Iguchi, were frequent collaborators, uh, have worked on a number of things over the years at Square before they left. But before 10-2, they did two other games, uh, composition and arrangement for them. Uh, Racing Lagoon, which is Square Enix's cult classic car RPG that recently got a fan translation here in English. Uh, And a lot of people have been playing and enjoying, and rightfully so. And one of the things that you can definitely hear there is that same style of soundtrack and the other game that they collaborated on was the bouncer, which also has just incredible sound and style and stuff. So this is a pair that is super good at putting together these kinds of soundtracks, this feeling of offbeat, not your traditional uh, fantasy RPG, but something very fun, very poppy, very uh, a different setting than what you're used to with like a high Mm. fantasy RPG uh, and I think it just works incredibly mm-hmm. well. I'm kind of bummed that they're not at Square anymore. I was trying to look up what other stuff they have done since. I couldn't find much for Matsueda, whereas uh, Takehito Iguchi has now gone on to work on uh, several Sonic the Hedgehog games with Tomoya Otani. Uh, most recently, I think, was Sonic Forces. Yeah, he worked on Sonic Forces. Um, so it's it's cool. I think there's a lot of interesting lineage in the people that come and go at Square and work mm. on these different games, but it's cool to see that, like, oh, Racing Lagoon, The Bouncer, <laughs> Final Fantasy X-2, that is totally a through line of Square RPGs that were different from the norm and were doing interesting, compelling things at the time, and so having them compose all these makes total sense. Mm. Um, the Celsius comes and picks us up. Uh, we find out that brother had apparently jumped ship and went looking for Yuna after hearing that she was in danger. And we get back into uh, the ship and he's lying on the ground, uh, dejected and defeated, uh, having been beat up and, you know, having jumped off the ship and all that. Uh, you can walk over him, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is hilarious. <laughs> to get the completion percentage here, you have to comfort him, which is also a weird scene because he like goes in for a hug slash kiss at one point and Riku like runs in and kicks him off, which again, weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> so step on no maybe don't step on him he don't play into his hand too much but it's <laughs> uh yeah uh not a not a good workplace <laughs> bad, <laughs> bad workplace environments um but shinra analyzes the sphere that we picked up we can watch it uh it looks like it's Xanarkand back in the olden days. Uh, we see people in line and it kind of sounds like they're talking about, you know, an idol meetup almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, some guys like, Oh my God, I got to meet her. I got to shake her hand. It's incredible. Um, the, our, our YRP crew determines that it's not really worth much. No one's really going to pay for that, but uh, Shinra can repurpose it into a dress sphere and we get the black mage dress sphere. So we're already starting to build up our, our closet full of different class options and stuff. And then buddy gets a notification that more sphere waves are bouncing out, uh, from Besaide and Xanarkin ruins. And those are our hot spots. And this is where the game just kind of opens up. Mm. Um, we can go really anywhere. Uh, all these different places have their own side stories and main stories. There are hot spots, which are kind of the main quest objectives that we need to complete to get through each chapter. Whereas there are also just side stories going on at different locales throughout Spira. So this is the part where things are going to get a little tricky for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, We have to kind of figure out how we want to do things. Like I think I'm going to go to Kilika first and then I'm probably going to do like Kilika, Besaid, and then one other place for my next one. It looks like you're kind of doing the same for chapter one. But this is the part of the game where things do kind of just branch out and then converge back in at, at mm-hmm. points. Uh, but it is kind of cool. I like that the airship has, mm-hmm. you know, functioned from the beginning. You know, the screen right. that we really only got to use at the end of Final Fantasy X. Now we have it from the outset and it looks really cool and right. stylish and they pop up with like hotspot and stuff like that. It's yeah, cool. It, it feels like in a, in a way like very reactionary to criticisms of 10, mm-hmm. like that it was too linear that like you didn't get to travel around the world much until the end. And you know, that's, that can be a good and bad thing. Like if you want to like to react immediately to the criticisms of the thing that you did before when you make the new thing. Cause I think, tend to like you know comparing again the, the easiest comparison to make is to the 13 trilogy where that was also reactionary in a way in terms of like they were reacting to very specific criticisms and um where 13 2 that felt more just like individual design choices they were just like kind of tweaking in ways that made that game just a breezier thing to play where 10 2 feels just like completely like the philosophies of its design were changed in holistic ways to make it you know, I gotta get to again address certain criticisms, and I think I just prefer that broadly because like it feels like Tenchu feels more purposeful in the things that it's trying to accomplish that it did not accomplish with the first game, where thirteen mm-hmm. two and to to less extent I think Lightning Returns felt like just like more like minute changes that they were making to kind of like try and perfect what thirteen did instead of you know just making this completely different game that Tenchu feels like compared mm-hmm. to the original game. Yeah. I mean, even just the fact that we can go anywhere we want right mm-hmm. from the outset, you know, it's, we can head out and go anywhere we want in this world. We don't have to go to a hot spot. We can just go somewhere if we want to mm-hmm. go there. And right. it's, yeah, it's got the sense of adventure to it, but it also mm-hmm. means that it's really easy to miss things. And right. 
if I almost feel like this is a game made with multiple playthroughs in mind, mm-hmm. because I think, yeah. especially if you are not trying to do everything, if you're just trying to get through the main story, I feel like it's a little on the short side compared yeah. it, to it, Final it Fantasy definitely, X. Can be, it, it's a game that like, I don't, like I recommend anyone who ever plays this game to play it with a guide. And I think like that is the optimal way to do it. And I don't, as open as it is, it does not do a great job. Or you know, I, I say that saying that it ever intended to do it. It does not signpost a lot of shit. And I mean, it kind of generally tells you, like, things are going to be happening in Spira while you're here. Like, and, you know, check in on them as you see fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and know that there's, like, a reward to doing that. Because, like, you know, there are things like dress foods that you can't get if you're not, you know, on top of shit. And broadly, I think, like, if you go to these places, like, they do, like a pretty good job of at least telling you what's going on so, like, you don't miss, you know, the actual plot of what's happening. But it like it can be in, like, small, minute things, like missing Yuna in Luka. Who, oh, by the way, the person that was dressed as a Moogle in Luka was Yuna. And um, that's why I think it's best to play with a guy, because, like, there are those small things that you can miss that can have larger ramifications mm-hmm. if you're not uh, looking out for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... I would be hard pressed. I don't know. I, I think there is a level of wanting to know certain things in this game and where they are, but I also think it is kind of cool. that This game is so dense that there is a lot of reward to playing it again mm-hmm. and knowing it. Well, um, mm-hmm. I don't know how the new game plus works. If it allows you to like carry things over very well, I think it has. Cause also, you know, by its nature, you know, 10 at some point eventually is like, Hey, you know, you, world's open you can go back do stuff that you might have missed you know do some mini games play blitz ball stuff like that uh whereas i feel like with 10 you do have to do very specific things at very specific points or know at least when certain things are going to trigger certain things in the story that will start to put you down paths or or block off progress for a little bit or things like that um it's it's an interestingly constructed game and that's also Mm -hmm. why i'm like excited to talk about it because again it's it's an rpg that doesn't feel like other rpgs it's there are there are definitely games that i've seen even in recent years one recently came out uh called get in the car loser uh that i saw some screens from it and i was like someone on that team played final fantasy Mm -hmm. (laughs) 10-2 i I can just tell (laughs) i know but uh there's it's it's one that feels like just drifted by and i think there's a lot of different reasons for that that we're going to delve into uh over the course of the podcast whether that's just because it can range from anything like oh it's it's too different from 10 or oh the the focus is different to even stuff that is just i'll even say as like a 10 year old boy you look at and you're like oh it's a game about girls mm. <laughs> there's like the 10 year old boy version of that and then there's like the the 22 year old boy version of that that's very different <laughs> and, right. uh you know there's a lot of aspects of it but like in all the ways that this game just feels tonally different visually different um like like battle system mechanically different and, and even narratively different having Yuna be the narrator through all this and mm-hmm. not having Titus and like Yuna is, you know, just as reflective and stuff, but it feels like you're hearing, you know, so many thoughts from somebody who has grown so much in, mm-hmm. in so much time and a lot of like interesting reflections. I'm excited for the part where we go to the Xanarkin ruins because I remember one part of that, like really hit me in the gut early mm-hmm. on. And it's, uh, it's just an interesting game and a fascinating look at how you can not just make mm-hmm. a sequel, 
to an RPG than make a sequel to an RPG that just feels like its own creation mm-hmm. in the way that an Ocarina of Time and a Majora's Mask feel yeah. completely different from each other despite being built on the same foundation. Yeah, and that's a that's a good comparison. I think it's, I mean, they, the, the Majora's Mask 10-2 comparison feels apt just because like, it feels like it's riffing on things in a very interesting way. And I think what it is, what stands out to me now, like, as we're, you know, heading into the game proper, um, is how, just how deliberate Tintoot still feels in the, in the face of, like, this very open-ended design that is, you know, because, like, you know, games of now, like, present, present day, are, like, they're very open-ended, and they're very big, and they want you to be able to explore this world and, like, you know, make it your own or whatever, but, like, a lot of that never really amounts to much, and it often feels like it's just kind of, like, big for the sake of being big, where Tintoot feels expansive, but also in a way that doesn't feel like that's arbitrary, that feels like it's trying to both communicate things about the world and the characters that you're playing as by being larger, but also allow you to just exist in this world in a way that you couldn't before in the first game. And yeah, it's just very excited to talk about this game with you, Eric, because like I said, this is my favorite Final Fantasy for a lot of reasons. And I think that is what is going to make talking about it, you know, in, in this way, whatever, however we end up structuring these next couple episodes. Um, uh, I think I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that we're going to be able to spend a lot of time with all of these smaller moments along the way as it gets into like these bigger conclusions at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to talk about it with you. Like I've been someone who's been very hungry for a different kind of RPG experience that, you know, challenges me a little bit that, that gives me viewpoints I'm not used to that doesn't feel like the same old, same old. And I feel like Mm. this is delivering that in spades right now. So on the note of structure, we will say that moving forward, things are going to kind of be beat by beat for us. The next two episodes are going to broadly contain chapter one of, uh, of final fantasy 10 two. Uh, so our, our, next episode will kind of be our chapter one part one in which i'm gonna roughly say we'll probably be doing the the besaid hot spot i feel like that's a good way to like post these two things is like we've got besaid hot spot in one and then maybe some other side stuff and then xanarkin hot spot and then whatever the conclusion of chapter one part two is going to be uh in the following episode we're still kind of trying to figure that out so we'll update and i'll say it at the start of every episode kind of what the sections we end up covering are going to be but i will say that generally outside of chapter four i think we're kind of aiming to do a two episodes per chapter mm-hmm. structure and then what the content of those episodes ends up being will largely be determined by uh how we feel it's best to allocate them between two episodes so you can listen to them sequentially or even if you just want to do all of chapter one and then listen to both episodes when they come out together, it's basically, I mean, the way that Ken and I are recording it is we're working pretty far ahead at this point, Mm -hmm. actually. And uh, our plan is to stay ahead and make the episodes feel as holistic, I think as possible, or at least Mm -hmm. as like to not have it feel like there are, you know, big gaps in between chapter sections and things like that. So we're going to work hard to make sure that the the narrative flows, so to speak, mm. <laughs> between episodes. And, of course, this season we're going to have plenty of guests. We're working on it right now, getting everybody locked in for it. Uh, we're going to have all the things that you know and love about Normandy FM. Uh, we're going to dive real deep. And then once we get to the end of it, we'll also be talking about all 
all the things that exist outside of Ten Two. <laughs> let's say uh, the last mission, uh, two point five, uh, Final Fantasy Ten will, which I only know one thing about, and I'm really excited to get to it for that reason. <laughs> what if we just canceled Normandy FM before we got to that? <laughs> what if we just didn't do it? I'm so excited for that though. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, we'll we'll get to all that. We'll even get to the new season, the one that we're in in the midst of planning right now, and that we're very excited about. It's going to be a good year here on Normandy you know, FM. You know how you fucking teased the Life of Strange season that didn't happen? Uh huh. I have such compulsions to just fucking tweet out what we're doing next. Just just tell the fucking world. Just do it. I know. Just- I've look. I've had. The same compulsions too, but you can't be you can't be a punk about this, Ken. You gotta act normal, you gotta act regular for all this, and you've gotta put it all together and we'll 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 say it when we're ready to say it. We'll have our big announcement. All right. See, I told you I was gonna fucking spook you on it. <laughs> As always, we are Normandy FM. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Normandy FM, where you can uh, head over there and back all the things we do, help support us through all the things that we are putting together, uh, including this forthcoming season of Normandy FM. If you back at that level, any level, you'll get into the Discord where we hang out, chat about the games that we're playing. At the next highest level, you will get the episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them. And at the highest level, you get your name shout out every week on the podcast. And this week, that uh, list is just The Wedge of Destiny, Mercedes Cluis, Meredith, and Micah Mante. Thank you all so much for contributing. And making yeah, thanks for chipping in here. Yeah, thank you for chipping in. You know, we appreciate it. <laughs> oh, we're terrible at this, Ken. <laughs> for all of us, for Ken, for myself, and for all the forthcoming awesome stuff we have to do here on Normandy FM in this new year of 10-2 and much more beyond it, we look forward to it. We'll see you next time on Normandy FM. <laughs>